we're back. Hiya. Um, I had uh, a bit of a break, as I'm sure you noticed. Maybe you didn't notice, actually. Maybe you don't give a shit. Um, but the main reason there's been such a big gap between this episode and the last episode is because I started covering one topic that I was very interested in and just could not get anyone to speak to me, so I had to drop it. And I was about a month in and I, I just couldn't pursue it anymore, so that was quite a lot of time down the shitter. Um, I managed to schedule three interviews, had three no-shows, a couple of really snotty, rude messages telling me to sod off, two academics who said they didn't want the hate, and none of the Facebook groups would let me in. That's literally never happened before. And then I got one really long, quite eye-opening response from someone basically explaining why they didn't want to talk. And the gist was basically, you're a tourist in this, this is my life, and I'm sick of going over it. Which I respect, even if I wanted to immediately challenge it. That particular topic is also very controversial at the moment, particularly in the UK. It's incredibly heated. And for some, maybe that would make it a really essential topic to visit, but I just realised, no, my, my take is not needed right now. So I'm shelving it for a while, and rather naughtily, I'm deliberately not telling you what it is, because I do want to go back to it at some point. But right now, it's just not a good time. Instead, today, in episode 8, it is episode 8, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Instead we are digging into motivational coaching. Uh, and that also took quite a while to source contributors for. I was sitting at my desk like, oh well, guess my podcast is dead now. Nobody wants to speak to me. Because without the interviews, there, there is no podcast. I can't stress that enough. It, it There's no point to it. It wouldn't exist. Because I'm not going to talk for 45 minutes straight. Nobody needs that. I started making progress slowly and it was a massive relief because the longer it went between episodes, the more I found I was avoiding it, which is really perverse. Anyway, avoidance over. Here it is. You're listening to it and I'm very happy with it and how it has gone. This episode focuses on the motivational coaching and speaking industry, why people pay a fortune to sit in the audience and why they clamour to read the spin-off book deals. I'm not talking about that bit in a film where Morgan Freeman comes out with something extremely profound, as though he just thought of it. I'm talking about the crafted, constructed seminars, the courses, uh, the books that claim to be able to sort your life out, and the people who create these things. Quite a lot of these courses focus on wealth and career. Some are more holistic, focusing on health, relationships, self-image, happiness. Here's the obligatory bit where I need to tell you what my biases are before I start. Uh, I'm not a complete stranger to this already, but I'm certainly no um, aficionado. I think I'm highly imperfect. I've had profound anxiety since I was three years old, and I've always been rapidly looking for ways to improve it. I've had a lot of therapy. I've read a few self-help books. One really helped me, but only one. I've had hypnotherapy just because I fuck it, why not? I've looked into some really expensive residential courses that claim to help you let go of the past and do things you didn't think you could. 
So this self-development stuff in terms of the more mental-emotional side isn't entirely lost on me. I get it. And I'm not here to shit on it. However, I don't think that more money makes you happy. I think it's one piece of a very complicated puzzle. I don't like shouty, brash people giving me advice in any context, which is this is full of, even when they're on a screen at a distance. I don't know how true this cultural stereotype is, but I'm British, obviously, and I find that hyped, yeah, everybody get up stuff very jarring. I just really cannot be doing with it. Even if there's some sound advice in there, and we're going to find out that there is, I often think this motivational stuff is packaged with offensive marketing strategies, sinister marketing strategies, which make it far too time-consuming and expensive to be worth it. I also think that life can be random and insane and unpredictable. Actually, I'm going to save that for the conclusion. Yeah, I'm going to save that. When I started planning interviews for this episode, ironically feeling very demotivated, um, I thought, right, I need to get someone who had a great experience and someone who had a shite experience. We can compare and contrast and that'll be great. But it became obvious quite quickly that it's not really helpful to do that. One person's experience of a course or a seminar doesn't really compare to another's because there's so many other factors involved. I spoke to two guys who've both tried quite a few courses, some great, some life-changing, some really not. The first was Kevin Durham, entrepreneur, entertainer and comedian. He went on a course that was basically attempting to teach how to be a millionaire. So I learned about it from a very good friend of mine um, and he said, yeah, I kind of got some stuff from it, but just be wary. They have some very high pressured sale techniques. So I thought, well, okay, uh, I've, I've run a few businesses in my time. I'm, I'm fairly used to the old tricks of the trade and sales and whatnot. So, um, you know, I, I can I can handle the pressure. You know, sales doesn't really phase me that much. Yeah, I went along to check it out. It's quite some time ago now, so it's a little bit hazy. But one thing I remember in particular, during the breaks, or just after or just before the breaks, what they would do is get people already kind of hyped up, really excited, they got people dancing. Um, I remember there was a, a music track that we played. It came out in the charts years ago. Uh, it was follow the leader, 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 follow the leader, leader, leader. So, at one point, I, I was kind of like, hey, yeah, yeah, this is a bit of a laugh. Let's kind of get up and have a bit of a dance. And then I just kind of took, took a step back and I just looked around. I listened to the music track and I, I, I just kind of realized that I actually, this is all part of it. This is all part of trying to drive people to part with their cash. The first day was fairly useful and fairly informative. Maybe going up to um, maybe two thirds of the first day, there was some advice about investment. There were, I remember one or two speakers who were talking about managing wealth. So all that was was fairly good. And then, yeah, it just it just kind of switched and, and the pressure really just started to mount. I, I think rather than actually giving advice, it turned more into um, we're wealthy, uh, you want to be like us, and in order for you to be like us, you need to do this course, which costs thousands and thousands of pounds. And, and that's what it turned into. And I think at one point, they closed the doors, and they told people not to go to the toilet. Really? Um, how, did you, how did you feel about that? How did you respond? 
Oh, I went to Lou. <laughs> I, 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 at that point, I just went, I kind of barged my way through, went to Lou, came back, and then very shortly after that, uh, we left. So far, so weirdly controlling and oppressive. Already, this sounds mega cultish. Please check off peer pressure and removing access to normal human freedoms on your cult bingo cards. I think it's a good time to bring in a different experience. Samuel Leeds is a property developer, entrepreneur and business coach. He's pretty active on YouTube, where I found his video review of a particularly popular course he attended in London. Now this course is one of the biggest, it's a global thing. The guy who runs it is like the big dog of the industry and his course is a half intensive group therapy, half pitbull concert. And I'm not being facetious when I say that. The event Samuel went to literally had pitbull on the bill. Try saying pitbull on the bill when you're pissed. You probably know who I'm talking about, but I'm choosing not to say his name. If you listened to episode two, which is all about multi-level marketing, you'll remember that I didn't mention any MLM company names. I'm doing the same with this episode. I won't be naming any individual coaches or courses or book titles. There are two main reasons. I think it's ethically dubious to mention someone, interview someone who has a particular opinion of what they do, good or bad, and then leave it there in the air with no opportunity for them to respond. There will be sources at thatsocult.com that give you more information. And also, it's not the point. Mentioning three or four names brings three or four people into it, when actually I'm talking about a an industry in general, it's a bit careless to only consider a few big names when there are hundreds of smaller coaches and speakers out there doing good things, dodgy things, unethical things, mediocre things, things. So yeah, that's why. Back to Samuel. The course he chose was very different to Kevin's in that it was about general self-improvement and development, not just becoming a millionaire. Well, I was very open-minded, and I've just heard raving reviews about it from people saying it's changed my life, it absolutely transformed the way I think. I'm just going to go with an open mind and, and sort of see what happens. So I didn't. I, I usually, when I go to a business meeting, I usually have an agenda, but I actually went with, 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 with no agenda at all. The content was really just about changing your life, thinking differently, being unstoppable, creating your own life, also around health and fitness, well, general well-being money, business, quite broad topics, every, say, 15 minutes, there'd be <laughs> usually some kind of outrageous um, dancing or something extremely crazy would happen. I think maybe it was to keep people awake and keep them in the room. <laughs> Very different from a, from a usual meeting or seminar that you might go to. I'm very happy to dance, but I think it was a little bit a little bit too much in my, in my opinion, but... Uh, what can I say? There was thousands of people there that were absolutely loving it. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna poo-poo it or say it was bad, but it was a little bit um, too much in my opinion. And um, so when you left the event, how were yep. you feeling? Were you feeling pretty buzzing? Were you tired? How did you feel? I, I was quite, I was quite glad really to, to, to leave and get back because it, because there's such long days and it's very intensive and you're not allowed your phone and things like that. You're not allowed your phone. 
Well, I, I, wouldn't, I don't know whether it was like a, they would confiscate it off you or anything that strict, but it's very unacceptable to be not 100% present and focused and they will call you on it. And Did you see that you know, happen? They, yeah, I did see that happen. Really? So if you, if you were there scrolling through your Twitter timeline, yeah. there would be someone who'd come over and say... What they'll usually do, they'll encourage everybody in the room to encourage one another so they don't have security walking up and down to make sure everyone's focused but they'll do things like they'll say if the person sat next to you is not stood up right now and they should be grab them up or if they're on their phone you know tell them to get so so they'll create that general atmosphere um and and rules in the whole room so did you do that with anyone or did anyone do that with you or anyone you were with yeah somebody um told me off for um being on my phone what, how, what did you think of that? Were you like fair play or was it a bit annoying? Yeah, both. It was it was a bit annoying. It was like four or five days or something. So it's very, very, very long. I'm running a business and things. So sometimes, yeah. I, I, you know, sometimes I want to I see what's going on. But at the same time, I did think fair play because I was in the room and I signed up to the programme. If everyone was just on their phone, it would, be, it would be a bit rubbish. So I can respect why the person said it. Meanwhile, back on Kevin's course... They had a different way to keep you alert and engaged. And, and then um, I remember there was um, an exercise all around burning money. Because I was heavily sceptical of this whole course anyway by this point, um, I didn't bring any money to burn. They, they kind of said, Let, let's, let's bring some money and get ready to burn it. They were actually yeah. expecting you to physically set fire to some money. Yeah, so actually, like ninety-five percent of the people in the room got some cash, and and they were ready to burn it. And I think there was someone at the end of the row with a candle and a bucket. The idea that they wanted you to, to believe was that you would set light to your cash, put it in this bucket, and that in itself would, I think, relieve any significance that you had around money. And then just before they actually had you burn the money, they um they said no 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 that's the, they, they don't don't burn the money. Um, you know, that's that's a, a silly idea. We just wanted to see how far you'd go and also t- treat you a lesson that um well I, I guess just to get you to understand how significant you are about money. So when that happened, did they make it seem compulsory? Were you expected to get up and do it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. They even said, anyone who doesn't have money, put your hands up, and someone who has a lot of money, give the people with no money some cash. So I put my hand up, and some guy gave me, I think, about 80 quid. Because, yeah, in in one way, it is a strange request, but in another way, you do get how significant you you are with money. So there there was a lesson there. But, you know, if I was to kind of look at the pros and cons, I mean, the the, the cons greatly, greatly outweigh the pros. I I think, actually, if you go online and look at the reviews of the courses they offer, they're slated left, right and centre. I came across someone who worked on their production team quite recently when they were having one of their um, sessions videoed. He was saying how one of the main course leaders was uh, swearing, chucking stuff around and being really aggressive and and, and talking down to a lot of the people that he was working with because I, I think they weren't quite hitting their targets and they weren't quite getting the number of people they wanted to sign up to sign up. It is a money-making machine. It, that, that's, that's essentially what it is. It yeah. really seems like the course should be, if you want to be rich, this is how you do one of these courses. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think I estimated at one point that 
um, they would rake in somewhere between, I think, 1.5 to 2 mil um, as a result of all of the people that were signing up. So many people got suckered in. So many people signed up, which um, absolutely baffled me. Because a lot of these people were, uh, you know, working professionals. They looked intelligent. Um, perfectly normal, perfectly normal people. Like nothing weird about them, nothing out of the ordinary. Most of them looked like yeah, they kind of had a little bit of money, like yeah, maybe middle class. Perfectly normal, nothing, nothing weird about them at all. Have you put things into practice? Are there tangible things that you've taken away from it? Yeah, it's very experiential. So rather than just telling you this is what you need to go away and do, that will get you to do practical exercises on the spot. Sometimes they can be quite you know, out there, awkward, real, difficult to do. And then as a result of actually doing it and practicing it on the spot for four or five days, it becomes almost part of you then. Speaking positively about yourself, about other people, mm-hmm. having high energy. You know, you do leave as a trained person in one in one sense. So I can definitely see why people do really enjoy and, and rave about these programmes. And I can also see why people might not like it as, as well. How do you think it could have escalated on day three? Because the toilet thing to me sounds like they're ramping up the pressure a bit. You know the scene from Planet of the Apes when the apes have kind of taken over and they've got all the human in chains? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so kind of like that. So, <laughs> people in cages and you're know, fighting amongst themselves and then there's like a Mad Max kind of scenario then there's like an overall apocalypse. So um, I, I guess the pressure just would have really mounted. My assumption is what they would leave you with is if you don't sign up to one of our courses, then you're just not going to make it. Poor or have the same level of income that, you, that, that you've always had and your life is going to be shit. Um, and I think, yeah, that's pretty much where they were going with their overall message, from what I remember. It's really helpful to remember at this point that people come to these things for infinite potential reasons, especially the course Samuel went on. There's a documentary about it on Netflix called I Am Not Your Guru. There'll be a link in the episode sources where you see people come along with their relationship problems, child sexual abuse, suicidal thoughts, the lot. It's really intense and they really need help. Even the millionaire course that Kevin went on could attract all sorts. Remember when he said how normal everybody looked? Well, there's usually quite a lot living underneath normal. There'll be people there who are just hell-bent on affording a Lamborghini, and that's sort of it. But there'll also be people on their second, third or fourth failed business, people sick of working for someone else, people desperate to own their own home, and there'll be people who are curious and open-minded. Okay, contrasting thought here. All this motivational stuff is basically self-help. Expensive self-help, a lot of the time. We're talking more than a 9.99 book, but self-help all the same. The process there, for most people, is looking around for advice that's helpful, finding a writer with a style you like, trying different ideas and techniques out. So obviously there's a degree of shopping around and trial and error to be done there. And, you know, that's on us. That's on us to work out what we want and what we like and who we want to listen to. We have the freedom to choose. What if, though, all or a lot of, or at least some of, the information we're using to choose is bullshit, though? 
I also found there are a lot of names out there that you won't recognise and you won't see on the Sunday Times bestseller list. They're self-published, they offer one-to-one Skype sessions for a considerable fee, their testimonials are usually glowing but unverifiable, and they've got a picture of themselves smiling confidently on their website, just a general, you know, potentially very inspiring origin story of how they've been in business for a while or how they made their fortune or there'll be a story about their personal growth and how you can learn from it and why you should spend several hundred pounds talking to them over Skype. Who are these people? So I did what any self-respecting journalist would do and I googled motivational coach scam because I wanted the tea. I found an article on Forbes called The Scam of Millennial Motivational Coaches. Millennials seem like a very easy target, I know, I am one. But I found the setup of this article really interesting. I'll read it to you. Millennials are well-versed with self-help and aspirational goals. They know about the secret, understand the importance of thriving to achieve the ideal work-life balance, and can chart out their visions via a poster board. Now the student is increasingly seeking to become the teacher, as a growing number of millennials are attempting to transform themselves into motivational gurus, similar to the days of evangelical ministers or even hucksters. I don't know what a huckster is, I'm going to google it. The challenge for their millennial peers is identifying the fakes from the real deal. And according to Google, a huckster is a person who sells small items door-to-door or from a stall. And quite worryingly, a publicity agent or advertising copywriter, which is sort of what I do for a living. I feel attacked. I DM'd the author, Larissa Four, a journalist focusing on millennials, workplace trends and career mavericks, to ask her a bit more about this generational difference. People want to help others, but... I mean, truthfully, when I dug into the article, it's all ego-based. I mean, people feel like, oh, I've been fired, so now I can help everyone experience, you know, what I've gone through and and know what it's like to come out through the other side. So it it just seems like um, a lot of this is just kind of, you know, self-congratulations, you know, building up their narcissism. I do feel like this culture has just kind of shifted into people don't really feel that they have to really pay their dues. And and to be honest, I mean, who wants to? The the humble person isn't going to want to be a life coach, but the the ones that are out there are a lot more visible. How do you think people could maybe distinguish between those who are walking the walk and those who are just talking the talk? See, that's the hardest thing to do because you really, it's so hard to tell right now. I mean, you could truly have a meetup in a Starbucks in LA and one in England and say, oh my God, I'm on an international tour. I I truly feel like the, the ones that are life coaches or motivational or just have the following, or it's all organic. You know, they start out by, you know, helping out friends and then it grows word of mouth and then it slowly builds upon that. But you can't really self-proclaim yourself to be one and then try to build it from there. Yeah. And that, you know, with social media, there's a benefit to how accessible it is in lots of ways, but it is sort of almost too easy to elevate yourself because you could, on something like Instagram, all you need to do is buy some followers and write your bio in a particular way with particular emojis. 
and say the right exactly. thing and you will look like Le- legit basically <laughs> it's so true and that's the, the sad thing is that there's so many fake pretenders out there i mean everyone out there now is a yoga you know instructor because they know how to pose amongst some sunset it really is just calling out what has become just a fake industry and i just don't feel like the people that are seeking these help really realize that the ones that are out there are really they they don't have their acts together at all you know they're just as messed up as as the people that that are seeking their help in your article, you said that you receive a lot of PR pitches from these kinds of people. <laughs> Are you still, yes. in, when you wrote it, you said you were getting about 10 a day. Do you still get that many? Oh, my God, yes. And what's funny now is that I've written so many articles, and and this was one that really hit. Everyone will pitch me and be like, I know that you are, you know, suspicious of this, but my client is different, or I'm different in this way. And so it's like they're always trying to pitch about how, yes, there are a lot of fakers out there, but, but we're not. Larissa and I talked a bit about social media, as you just heard. I'm reluctant to just blanket blame social media for things like this and she seemed to be too it's just way too easy there's always other factors and plus social media isn't some alien force that struck us down and made us completely powerless it's not a virus it refracts all the same human traits that we've always had we used to do cave paintings now we put filters on things and post them on instagram same shit different application different audience I love the fact that you don't need anyone's approval to create something online. You don't need a publisher on the side, you don't need to beat down doors, you don't need to make people listen to you, you don't need to have specific connections or a specific degree. That's all great, and it's the reason you're listening to this right now. I don't think any of us can deny it though. It's really easy to make shit up on social media and dock to the way you appear. Edit basically. This is something that keeps coming up on this podcast. It was in MLM, uh, it was in clean eating, it was in pickup. What really fucks with me though is that we all know this, but we sort of allow ourselves to be deceived in a way. It's a really comfortable deception. I'm not even sure it's conscious most of the time. You can tell when someone's used Facetune, because all the different skin tones and shadows that we naturally have just blur into this one weird mashup. And oh look, she's got no knees. Why has she got no knees? We know that people post their highlights, because we do it too. And even when they post about hardships, it's usually with a rosy glow of lessons learned or whatever. Still edited. But we still take it all in somewhere in our brain, and it's processed in this way we don't really understand yet. And for some people, it comes out in the form of self-loathing, FOMO, boredom, loneliness, thinking that everyone's having a better time than you, thinking everyone's more adjusted than you are, thinking people have it together when they really don't. Some blessed people just sail through it and don't take it in, I don't know how. I think most of us though are sort of in the middle somewhere. If someone's really consciously crafting how their coaching business appears on social media and their website and possibly on YouTube, we can partly put that down the straightforward marketing rationale. They want business. They want to look good. They want to look trustworthy. Trustworthy? We're German now. They want to look trustworthy, reputable, all that stuff. But I'm still suspicious. So I wanted to talk to a real 
motivational speaker and find out what goes on behind the curtain. I really didn't think it would be possible. I didn't think anybody would tell me. And then, (laughs) with some careful keyword combinations, I found someone who was not only in the industry and very successful in the industry, but someone who's chosen to leave it. So I am a unique case. I was a working child entertainer since I was six years old and from six to 18 as a professional magician. So not only was I literally groomed to be comfortable on stage, but with a magician, it is their job to deceive people. When I was touring, at the peak of that work as a speaker, I was touring on self-love and self-compassion for high-performing people, whether they're top college students or athletes, entrepreneurs or whatever. Every night, I would stand on stage and talk about my struggles in life and, and, and my struggles with my relationship to myself. When you're speaking or coaching someone, it really helps to take the focus off you and put it on them. And then discuss, you know, how these struggles can be used or solved or worked with in a way that's productive. I actually tried to be proactively upfront. But what caught me off guard was it didn't matter to the audiences. I seemed comfortable on stage. I am was comfortable on stage. But when when an audience experiences a speaker, the speaker can say, Hey, you know, three nights ago I was suicidal. But if they make the audience laugh and they seem confident and they have a little bit of insight into life the audience will just sort of put a halo above this speaker and they'll, they'll disregard everything that he or she just said. Jason Connell is a writer, speaker and former magician, which is really fun. When he was a full-time speaker, he was coaching athletes, entrepreneurs, politicians, the lot. Currently, though, he's training to be a meditation teacher, taking a bit of time out, he's stopped touring and he's winding down his work as a consultant to professional speakers. As a speaker, things were going really, really, really well. I I was one of the most in-demand speakers on the circuit, selling out global tours. And concurrently, my personal life was falling apart. A a friend of mine had died. My best friend moved away. My girlfriend and I mutually split up. And I had gotten back from this tour and was just dead to the world. Like three, four days in bed, just sort of doing nothing and, and feeling used, basically, or empty. And that sharp, sharp contrast of, oh gosh, I've I've accumulated much of the success that entrepreneurs lust after and none of the the normal trappings of a a daily healthy life, that for me was the breaking point. I actually believe in a lot of what I said on stage. I, I certainly got some stuff wrong, no question about that. But the stuff that I shared was heartfelt. It didn't feel hollow to me. What felt hollow to me was my existence um, and then the lack of reciprocal connection with my audience. With speaking and coaching, we tend to equate this to something akin to therapy. And it's really, really not. I mean, in its best, speaking and coaching is emotional entertainment. A talented speaker, a talented coach can often evoke emotion in the way that a musician can evoke sound from a violin. That's manipulation. Right, Like if you put someone in front of me, and and many skilled speakers and coaches can do this, and said, hey, make this person feel extremely confident. Gosh, I I could do that in five or ten minutes, but it's a hollow feeling. When I was interviewing Larissa, 
It struck me that this motivational personal development industry stuff is a lot like the diet and fitness industry. There are a lot of products and trainers and programs out there and they all want your money. They can all promise you'll lose this amount of weight and you'll look like this and you'll feel amazing. As soon as they've sold you their product though, that's them off the hook in a way. You're the only person who can turn it into something tangible. This is the same, basically. Lots of people claim to have the answers and there'll be a lot of people who sit there, take it in, feel great initially, like Jason said, and then go home and it fizzles out and it sort of turns into nothing. They were sold something as though it's instantaneous and it's really not. The vast majority of speakers and coaches, and I, I really mean vast majority, and I, I mean this from an insider perspective who was in the belly of the beast for a decade, are lying about who they are on stage and as, as coaches. I was also on tour with a, a nutrition expert or health expert or something like that, and he had talked about the, the benefits of a plant-based diet. And then we went out for dinner afterwards with the sponsors of the event. Motherfucker ordered a hamburger. The level of hypocrisy, I looked at him as like, did I not just hear you lecture on giving on, on plant-based diet and all the all the like incredible things? He's like, yeah, I keep a mostly plant-based diet. It's ingrained in the culture for the speakers and the coaches to be disingenuous about who they are. The audience has this unrealistic expectation of, of what a human can and should be. So I know an author who recently published a book on sales. This guy's a very successful speaker, makes a lot of money, gets in front of a lot of people. The book became a bestseller. But there's a couple problems here. First of all, this guy's own financial house is in such disarray that he hasn't been able to pay his staff for like six months. I know this because I'm friends with one of his staff members, close personal friends. Additionally, the bestseller status of this book was something he purchased. Not not a lot of people realize this, but the, the best-selling list, at least in the United States, I don't know about the UK, can be gamed. If you have enough money to throw behind the marketing of your book, and then here's the here's the nail in the coffin. The strategies that he discusses in his sales book are not strategies that he himself actually uses. He uses entirely different strategies. So what we have here is this entire work of fiction, both his stage show and his best-selling book, masquerading as gospel. And this is where we start to feel really bad to everybody that buys his book and everybody in his audience, because all the external cues suggest this guy knows what he's talking about. He's confident and on stage and he's being paid a lot to be here and he's written a best-selling book and blah, blah, blah. Come to find out if you listen to what he says on stage, if you do what is in the book, it's not going to work because it's all fiction. He doesn't do it. Nobody fucking does it. This industry is so messy and slippery. There are those who have lived through really difficult, horrible things and can turn that into some insight and perspective. There are people who are invited to give TED Talks where they put their years of experience into a helpful and hopefully funny 15 minutes. There are those who think The Wolf of Wall Street was aspirational. We've covered some of those. The worst people you could be sat next to on a flight, basically. There are those who use a tough love approach and are happy to get in your face and tell you not to be so entitled and you pay them for it and thank them, apparently. And there are those, it seems, who will say anything that gets a reaction or anything that you want to hear. With that in mind, it was quite nice to talk to Samuel about his own background and how he grew his business. 
he's gone through life hand-selecting the advice and education he takes on board, thinking about it carefully. Like a deli counter, but a really, really good one. A Selfridges food hall one. I think when you really, really want to do something bad, especially when you're in a position when you're not in a position to be able to do it, like I wasn't. I wanted to be a property investor, and I, I was a teenager with no money and nobody to get a mortgage. I think you've just got to do absolutely everything. I, I read books. I did. I attended a lot of seminars and training programs. I'd go and travel the other side of the country to have a coffee with someone that was a few steps ahead of me in, in the game. I did, I did everything. You know, you can never stop learning. I'm a massive believer in just constantly stretching yourself, learning, growing. Whatever it takes to get ahead in business and make a lot of money and do what some would think is impossible, Samuel has clearly got it. Did he need to go on a course to get it? After speaking to him, no. I think it's innate. I think he's always had it. The courses and experiences were clearly an education. He didn't learn how to get motivated, though. He is motivated. He walked into them with a particular attitude, though. It doesn't always help to speak in black and white terms. I generally avoid it. You know I don't like doing it on this podcast. But you could say Samuel went in with the right attitude. He told me about a few courses and books that haven't worked for him. They sounded quite a lot like Kevin's, actually. Very hard sell, not much proper education, not much substance. And it really put him off for a while. He's happy to always be learning, though. Kevin has that in common with him, which naturally led him back to explore new courses and seminars that could give him a bit of a motivational top-up. In a way, though, I think that's all it is, a top-up completely unrelated, but who remembers topping up their pay-as-you-go phone in the 2000s? I used to go into the orange shop, orange, they don't even exist anymore, and put a tenner on my Sony Ericsson, I think every month, and if I ran out, I ran out. That was it, no more texting. This is the first time I've used the word top-up since then. Off-topic nostalgia, couldn't help myself. Back to this. There's nothing wrong with getting a motivational top-up, but it certainly puts the life and death, you need this, pay several thousand pounds stuff into perspective. Some of the people in Jason's audiences and his contemporaries were probably there for a top-up, but some were there with metaphorical open arms. Remember what he said about evoking emotion? A talented speaker, a talented coach, can often evoke emotion in the way that a musician can evoke sound from a violin. Versus with a skilled and licensed therapist, what they can do is they can get their hands dirty with you over the course of weeks, months, years, and find out what is wounded within you and help you realize that on your own terms. And then use, at times, skills that are very counterintuitive to help heal that wound, heal that trauma, heal that abuse, so the confidence sort of emanates from you. The way to heal is through evidence-based approaches. In my eye, the starting spot for most people is psychotherapy. There's other modalities. I mean, there's great research for psychedelics. There's great research for for meditation, flotation tanks, yoga, etc. But I think psychotherapy should be the starting point. What psychotherapy, flotation tanks, meditation, etc. all have in common is they have horrible horrible PR problems. Therapy comes with a huge stigma. Meditation remains this thing that is mostly for smelly hippies uh, and flotation tanks are just crazy. Compare and contrast this with a working speaker or a working life coach. These people tend to be fairly skilled at marketing, fairly skilled at sales, and fairly skilled with charisma. So you're actually going to feel pretty good 
in their presence. And if you look at their marketing, they frame it in such a way so that working with them is an act of self-love and self-care. It's an investment in yourself. So when you look at the 5,000 person audience, what we're seeing are people who have some sort of wound, right? There's something in their life that's really not going well and they are looking for healing. They have thousands of dollars of disposable income, though it might come tight for some of them. So when they look at the different options for healing, they could do this crazy hippie thing. They could do this thing with the stigma. Or they could do this elite thing that costs thousands of dollars that's run by a charismatic person and he's making big promises about how you can transform your life in, in the moment. But a lot of times we just want to be led. Reality is complicated. So if somebody's just going to tell us what to do and you know they're confident and tall and charismatic and good looking, it's very easy for us to follow that lead. Coaches and, and, and speakers exploit that all the time. So when you think from the audience's perspective of how they feel when they're by themselves in their apartment, not happy with their life, looking at the different options for improving their lives, one option, psychotherapy, is going to make them feel broken. Another option, life coaching, is going to make them feel like they are a top performer in getting better. So I think it comes down to, weirdly, an element of marketing and individual behavior. So you've done other courses that have helped you, like significantly helped you. What was it about yeah. those courses or a particular course that worked, do you think? This is a course that I can attribute most of the successes that I've had in my life since doing the course. I did the course at a fairly young age. I was about 19 years old when I did it. I wasn't expecting anything. I saw this, this massive change in my brother after he did the course. So there must be something in this course. There must be something I can get. But I had no idea what I would get. The overall main result is I got for myself that I really can create my life in any way that I want to have it. And I got the tools to do that. The things that I created in my life include, um, you know, I've built and sold three businesses. I've traveled the world uh, interviewing celebrities and doing TV work. I have um, great marriage. And I go on and on and on and on and on. The way in which it works is that it looks at your past. Your past is not in your past. Your past is actually in your future. The uh, decisions and actions that we make in the present are, you know, not coming from a clear space. They're coming from things that we made up about ourselves, other people, and the world. It gives you the tools to actually go into your past and complete on these things that happened. Then you've got a, a, a clear space to do anything that you want to do. When you were a speaker and you, I presume, had maybe, maybe not friends, but acquaintances and maybe some friends in the industry, are you still friends? Or has it been difficult to continue those relationships? The vast majority of my friends are people who have nine to five jobs, who do not work in public, uh, and have like could not explain what the fuck I did for ten years of my life when I was on jet planes every other day. Is that that refreshing? Oh my god, Helen, it's amazing. It, it's like over the past three years, having shifted from like being in the belly of the beast, hanging out with the speakers and, and entrepreneurs and all this shit, to uh, normal friends that I went to college with and high school with or that I've met in Denver, oh my god, it's super refreshing. As an entrepreneur, what motivates you? Lots of things motivate me. I'm motivated by good products and good service to help people. I'm motivated to make money, to be able to um, provide a good life for my family and to be an inspiration to my, to my daughter and soon-to-be uh, son as well. Many things motivate me, but if I had to say the most, it would just be being the absolute best version of myself that I can be. Being a role model for my daughter as she grows up, I really want her to get that you know, anything 
is possible and available from her life. But I, I guess money does drive me. And I guess the other thing that really drives me is um, wanting to create a successful career where I'm being fully self-expressed and, and having a laugh and having fun. And that's really why I'm, I'm pursuing a career as a comedian right now. One thing is absolutely certain in my mind after researching this. The people who do these courses and watch videos of these speakers and read their books want to do something good in their life. They're all about positive change. They're proactive, they're engaged. All good things. Really good things. Unfortunately, I think it takes very little to exploit that engagement. Samuel and Kevin are clearly examples of people who can work out when the speaker isn't being authentic, but they've been duped before, just like we can all be duped. I do think there are a lot of cultish elements in here. You've got people on stage with sometimes thousands of adoring followers. You've got people following all kinds of advice because they really believe it's good for them. And you've got a lot of emotional manipulation, financial exploitation, and probably some other dodgy shit behind the scenes. Ding, 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 very cultish. Every course is different, every uh, speaker is different, and there's going to be people in there with really good intentions, just like there are people in there with shitty intentions. But if you go to one of these things, whatever it's about, however it's coming across, you might be on board, I don't know. But if they lock the doors, and say you can't go to the toilet, I really do think you're well within your rights to get up and force those doors open like Kevin did because that shit is not right. You know how I love to bring these episodes right back around to myself and my own life? I am, after all, an only child. I had this really (laughs) fucking dreadful marketing job for about two months once. It was one of the shittiest periods of my life so far for various reasons. I had to do it because I needed a new job really fast and I chose it because it was the first offer I got and it was 10 minutes from my flat. The guy who ran the company didn't actually learn my name until he had to sack me at the end of month two. I'm serious. One of the most annoying things he did in that time was give me a stack of business and sales coaching books and he really really expected me to take them home and read them in my own time. They were all about making money and connections and sales strategies and business mindsets and all that shit. I obviously didn't read them and they just sat there on the desk. I think I maybe moved the stack of books from one side of the desk to the other but I definitely did not open them. (laughs) I don't know why I was sacked, (laughs) I wonder. The great irony is Him sacking me was extremely motivating. It's a really long story that I'm not going to delve into, but I'd lost a job I loved before having to do this one. So this was just the second time I was left jobless in a few months, so I was over it by that point. I'd not lost anything this time, so fuck it. I was going to be freelance, I didn't want to rely on an employer again, I wanted to be in charge of my own day, so I did that and I've been happily doing it for three years, making more than he ever fucking paid me. I was scared to do it before, which is why I took that job, but then he put me in a position, unknowingly, where it was basically the only choice and it felt right and I was compelled to do it. One of his books could not have got me to do that, 
I think only you can motivate you. It's far too important a thing to put in someone else's hands. Life also can be random and insane and unpredictable and surprising and also really, really great as well as really dreadful. It's messy. It's not a couple of books and a seminar and you're done. If it was, the world would be very different. The irony of this episode is I chose it when I really needed motivation <laughs> and had like none. I watched some of the speakers on YouTube, didn't care for it, not my jam. But speaking to these four people and getting some really nice feedback, really considered feedback as well from listeners over the past few weeks, thank you, has made a really, really big difference. And I've gone from putting this episode off to really loving the process again and sitting down to interview and edit. Yeah, thanks, I guess. Thank you. And thanks to my weird subconscious for somehow picking this topic when it's exactly what I needed. That's a Cult is written and edited by me, Helen McCarthy. I'm on Twitter at Helen L. McCarthy. The music is composed by Antti Luodi. You can find his information in the episode description. If you use his music yourself, you can. It's royalty free, but make sure you credit him. Thanks to my interviewees, Kevin Durham, Samuel Leeds, Larissa Faure, and Jason Connell. Their details are in the episode description. If you liked this episode or have any other thoughts or comments, please tell me by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. It pops up on all sorts of websites I've never heard of. I know every fucker who makes a podcast asks for reviews. It's very repetitive. It's because of the algorithm and the fact that we need ego fulfillment to live. This is the last episode of 2018, um, but I'll be making more next year. Uh, I'm not going anywhere, if I can possibly help it. In the meantime, I want to hear your internet cult suggestions. Just email thatsacult at gmail.com to tell me what you think I should cover. Thank you for listening.